everybody, welcome to another episode of the Cats HQ Podcast. This is John Hill sitting alongside Fletcher Page. We are in Atlanta for the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. Since we last spoke to you, um, Kentucky has beaten two double-digit seeds in Boise, Idaho. Uh, obviously, that did not quite go according to script. We all thought we were getting that Kentucky-Arizona matchup in the second round. That did not happen. Kentucky-Buffalo was obviously not as sexy, uh, but things have really opened up for the Wildcats in a bracket that John Calipari complained about as being too difficult and too hard. Instead of Arizona, Virginia, they're going to get Buffalo, Kansas State, and then possibly a matchup against Loyola or Nevada in the Elite Eight to go to the Final Four. Now we're in Atlanta, Fletcher. Everyone is picking the Kentucky Wildcats as the overwhelming favorite to make it to San Antonio. I think 538 has them as the highest percentage to get to the Final Four of any team in the field. How does this team maybe shift focus from even a week ago when people were thinking they were not even going to make it to Atlanta to now being the odds-on favorite and everybody telling them how good they are and how easy it's going to be this weekend? Yeah, John Calipari said, used, brought up the term poison, said that all this good press and everybody sort of riding Kentucky all the way through to the Final Four was, was poison that his team should not drink. You know, Kentucky's earned this right, though. I don't view it as a weakness. You know, we always try to f- speculate how a team – Came fall, um, but I, I think that um, in a in a region where the top four seeds lost, Kentucky didn't. So uh, I'm not going to criticize their path. I know it's easier easier than it might might have been otherwise, uh, but Kentucky earned that right. And I think this group is so young. It's a, this might sound stupid, but they don't know what they don't know. You know, they're they're just a group of freshmen, uh, eight true freshmen and a couple of sophomores out there. Um, Kansas State, I don't know if that's got more name rec- any more or less name recognition than Virginia might to them. So um, I think they're going to go out and do their thing and, and play ball and keep playing defense the way they have. And, and I'm not really buying too much into this listening too much to the publicity or not listening too much or any of that stuff. You wrote about this today on the website, career-journal.com. You can check it out. Or in the print edition, our special section coming out Thursday, uh, March 22nd, before the Sweet 16 game. How exactly – is, does it play out if Kentucky doesn't make it to San Antonio? I think all of us are picking them to make it there. They're obviously going to be the favorite over Kansas State and whoever they play in the Elite Eight if they beat Kansas State. But what's the scenario where they slip up in Atlanta and maybe it doesn't play out how everyone thinks it's going to now? Yeah, as it just relates to Kansas State, and we can we'll talk more about the Elite Eight matchup later. Kansas uh, Kentucky is two and eight this season when they did not score seventy points, and both those wins came against Georgia. Kansas State won both of their tournament games without scoring 70. They play one of the slowest paces in the country. Uh, so that's how you'd begin the case. That they'll take the air out of the ball. They'll try to run the shot clock to 20 seconds at least every possession, keep Kentucky out of transition. And that that's how you would kind of begin the, your method for taking down Capone. Um, also, I think Kentucky, they've already proven that they don't have to hit threes to win games. They did that against Davidson. Um, but they can't take very many threes either. John Calipari's talked about that a lot during his career. He just doesn't have teams that shoot 30 times from beyond the arc. Uh, but this team doesn't really need to shoot more than 15 times. So they don't got to make a lot, but they got to make sure that they're not taking a lot. And the third thing, I just sort of threw this out as fundamentals. I think Kentucky's defense has been exceptional uh, since St. Louis at the SEC tournament. But they are 15-1 and this season when they shoot 20 free throws. It's pretty obvious that that's part of the mentality of getting to the rim, not settling. And also, during this win streak in the postseason, uh, in all but one game, they've had more assists than turnovers. So that's I know that's not sexy. That's kind of boring fundamentals. Uh, but that's that's the difference for this Kentucky team. Let's get a little bit more into the three-point shooting. Obviously, in Boise, um, 
in the first round game against Davidson. You mentioned they went over six from three. The th- long three point streak over a thousand games since 1988 ended. Are you uh, sad that it's ended? No, I'm not sad because now I don't have to worry about writing that story ever again when uh, when it's they're 0 for nine or whatever with five minutes left in the game. So I, I know some fans probably don't share that opinion, and, and they thought it was something. It was a point of pride for this program. Uh, they're never going to be on top again because you know, however many programs there are between them and first place now, all those teams probably aren't going to miss. Uh, maybe in a long time, just with the way that the games are played now. So I think that is interesting. But we had talked before the tournament and throughout the season that maybe shooting was the Achilles heel for this team. And if they had a game like that 2010 team did with John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins where they were just terrible from threes and the other team was really good, then that's a way to get upset or that's a way to, to bow out of the tournament. Uh, now that they've done it, and you mentioned the not taking many threes, but did they get it out of the way? Or is that still a concern for this team? Could a bad shooting night kind of end their season or, or make it at least much closer than we expected to be? Yeah, I think the only scenario where it, that specifically would end it is if, if, if like that John Wall team, they're yeah. still taking them. I think the lesson was – um, maybe even overstated, but it seemed like Kentucky was passing up wide open right. looks against Davidson just to get to the rim, which is fine. Um, I think if this team hits six, seven, eight threes, you can pretty much almost right lock them in as winning that game. Uh, they gave up a thirty-three to zero advantage to right. Davidson and won. Um, and conversely, and I've made this point, I feel like you've probably heard me say the same things like four times. John mm. drove us to Atlanta, and I had to do like three radio interviews. It was good. They were all good radio interviews. So, Well, I pretty much get the same questions, answer them the same way. But the key for Kentucky, of course, is Davidson shot nearly 40% on the, for the season beyond the arc. They held Davidson to 33%. Buffalo had hit uh, you know, 15 to 30 against Arizona in the first round. They held them to 25%. So pretty obvious that Kentucky's defense – their length, um, even if they're going to give up points in that head-to-head you know, battle from beyond the arc, they're going to hold teams to lower percentages. I've pretty, I'm pretty confident that they'll continue to do that. They've done it all season. Um, so I think that Cal Perry's got the tape of Davidson and can show them. You can't settle for threes. We don't got to make them, but you can't take them. So I think they've got the blueprint for how to kind of get over that. Yeah, I think what we saw in the first weekend is really the difference between this team when they don't make any threes or if they only make one or two versus when they make six or seven like they against Buffalo, that that takes it from a, a fairly close game against Davidson to a complete blowout in the second half against Buffalo. And I don't know that we can count on them to do that every game, even though they've done it pretty often in the last month, especially in St. Louis, especially obviously in the second round where they've gone out and had those games. Winning Gabriel's obviously not going to hit seven threes every game like he did in, in the SEC tournament. But when he's hitting, when Quaddy Green hits a couple, when Shea hits a couple, which he did, uh, I think those are, are big moments for this team, and, and, and that's the separation that I think we're talking about. If if you make five or six, I don't see any way if they do that in both games here in Atlanta that they're not in San Antonio. And frankly, if they do that for the rest of the tournament, I think that they're you got to pick them with anybody to win the whole thing, which it gets much dip, more difficult when you get to that final game with their opponents, obviously. Uh, but there's a lot of reason, I think, to be optimistic about Kentucky right now other than just the way that the bracket has played out so far. Yeah, and if you look at the way that the roles have sort of – Calipari has defined these roles for players, but also these things sort of take care of themselves. Shea Gilgis-Alexander has probably taken 90% of his shots this season inside the arc, yeah. driving into in the lane. Hamadou Diallo has learned that over the course of the season not to settle for threes. P.J. Washington's going to the rim. Really the only players they've got that are catch and shoot right now are, is Quade Green and uh, Winion 
those are the only two guys where they really can't put it on the floor and do much after they catch it. Uh, they've got Kevin Knox running the baseline yeah. and catching it, you know, mid-range or the short corner. And that's really – I think that's been good to kind of keep him from settling. And while he can hit three-pointers, it's pretty clear now that Kentucky's sort of moving moving their range in a little bit. And they've got some guys some better threats, but it sort of happens naturally within the flow of, a, of an offense. Let's talk a little bit more about a couple of guys you mentioned there. Uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, obviously – uh, the star of this team now, probably going to be a lottery pick. He's the highest projected player on the team now in the draft, uh, even though he was not even projected to be drafted when he came into the year. You wrote a big story about him last week heading into the tournament. Then he went to Boise and had two very good games. But specifically what we saw him do against Buffalo, the way he played, and then that moment where he you know, shushes the crowd and showed a little energy. How much has Shea evolved into that player? Uh, I saw a list today. We get these emails from betting websites all the time, uh, even though the NCAA does not support sports gambling, if you didn't know that. Neither do we. Neither do we, yeah. Um, and and one of the prop bets is basically favorite to win uh, most outstanding player in the tournament. And one of the services we got from today had Shea at like 12-1 to 1 or something. He's like fourth or fifth on the list. Another service I saw actually had Kevin still ahead of Shea in terms of odds to win that. And these same services didn't have Shea on at all last week when we got these emails before the first round. I guess what I'm getting around to in a long way here is – is this version of Shea the player that leads Kentucky to a title? Uh, how or have we seen? Is this him at his best level? I guess. Yeah, I think that I think that this is classic college basketball, and I think it's classic Calipari. You've got a a physically dominating point guard who's six foot six with a seven foot wingspan that can defend very well, and he's been dominant with with steals, but his offensive. Uh, you know, nature is get into the lane. And there's really three things that can happen. Uh, He hits a layup, he kicks it out, or he gets fouled and goes to the free throw line where he is an elite free throw shooter. The fourth thing is you get the ball up off the glass or the rim and there's an offensive rebound there potentially for somebody like P.J. Washington. So that's sort of where in college basketball, if you've got a guard like this that, that that can sort of turn the corner, get downhill, and just get it up there somehow, uh, you've got a pretty good chance to win games. So he sort of emerged, um, and that's sort of a that's been a pretty classic blueprint for success in March for a long, long time. Uh, so that's why I think that I think Kevin Knox still probably has a little bit higher ceiling in terms. He could go off for 35 points in a game, but I do think he's got a, a little bit lower floor too. And we saw that against Buffalo. Foul trouble plays a, plays a role with Kevin too. Yeah, here's the here's the list uh, from Bavada.com. I got this email today. Uh, odds to win tournament most outstanding player Marvin Bagley of Duke and Jalen Brunson of Villanova are the favorites at six to one. Then Grayson Allen's ten to one. Mikael Bridges from Villanova is twelve to one. Devontae Graham from Kansas is twelve to one, and Kevin Knox is twelve to one. Shea is another five players down the list at eighteen to one. That seems really strange to me. I don't, I don't know how you could watch this team in the first two week two games of the tournament and think that Shea's not winning most outstanding player if Kentucky wins. Because basically, you're saying who's the best player on the team that wins for this award. And I, I don't think it's even close. I don't, I don't know why you would have Kevin as the favorite there. It's not, too, because of, you know, no offense to Kevin, he's not exactly the playing defense at the level that I think Shea can. Um, and Shea just means so much to the team. And the kid, He's playing 39 minutes a game at this stage of the season. He's dominating the ball. He's making all the decisions. Uh, he's the guy that creates for himself, creates for others. So uh, Kevin is a great offensive player. Uh, but in terms, if you use the term, what is it? Is it most outstanding? Most outstanding. That's what it says. Well, I think Shea is most outstanding and also most valuable. So, right. pretty easy vote. 
The other guy I wanted to talk about is Hamadou Diallo. What we saw him do against Buffalo, uh, we haven't really seen all season. I know early in the year, Monmouth, uh, Madison Square Garden, he had a very good game playing in front of his hometown crowd and his fans and his family and all those people. But the way he defended in the first weekend of the tournament, then the way he scored against Buffalo, being efficient, uh, the crazy putback dunk, the crazy windmill dunk at the end, the two blocks that he had in that game, the block he had the game before, this seems like the best version of Hamadou Diallo and the guy that NBA teams thought might be a first-round pick a year ago when he hadn't even played a college game. Is it fair to expect him to do that every game now? Or is it, was that a, 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 I don't know, a, a circumstance of the moment? Or what, what, what got into Hamadou? And is this who he is now? I think this is who he is defensively. I think he's locked in, engaged. He's, he's superior. He is the superior athlete against almost every player he's going to guard. Uh, that's who he is defensively from here on out, or he better be, or something's gone wrong. Offensively, though, I think what you're going to continue to see is a lot of Shea, a lot of Kevin, and, you know, P.J. Washington has had some great moments since the SEC tournament, but maybe maybe sometimes P.J.'s in foul trouble. Um, Hamadou has had his moment, and I think that's really the difference between this Kentucky team and when they're playing a Davidson, Buffalo, Kansas State in a row like this, where you go, where is this Hamadou Diallo coming from? I don't think Kansas State could have their could have a fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh player come in and absolutely take over a game like Hami did, and I think that's why Kentucky should should easily win these next two games because it could it could actually I mean this, people are going to kill me for saying this it could be Nick Richards right it could be Quade Green who's had had been mostly cold no. a little bit it could it could be PJ Washington so uh, Kentucky's just got that's what you really call that's a margin for error right yeah absolutely. And, and we've seen guys, I mean, like when Gabriel stepped up in the SEC tournament, obviously they had that huge game. Sasha Kalea-Jones has played a much bigger role in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the guy that we haven't seen play, obviously, in a couple of weeks now, uh, that's the topic of conversation again today in Atlanta is Jared Vanderbilt. Uh, maybe he's getting closer to going. It seems like Cal opened the door a little bit earlier this week uh, in, in his radio show and some other things about being eager to see how Jared was. Uh, you watched about 15 minutes of their shoot around today, and Jared didn't do much of anything. You talked to him in the locker room beforehand. You talked to him after the uh, Buffalo game. Do you see any way that Jared Vanderbilt plays tomorrow night against Kansas State? I don't think so. Uh, the only thing I actually saw him do with a basketball was make interior passes during a drill, and then I mean he didn't he didn't make any moves, didn't make any cuts. So he was off to the side. So I don't think he'll be back here in Atlanta. And I, at that point. It'd be tough to come back for the Final Four after you've missed, what, two, three weeks yeah. and have zero conditioning. I guess that's the question, is at what point does Kentucky get to where it hurts them trying to put him into the rotation or whatever again more than it helps them having him there? Well, I remember when I, we were at South Carolina, he came in, and he was just shot out of a cannon, right. 100 miles an hour. I think if you could work him in and say, listen, things are going great, obviously. You've got five fouls. PJ's been in foul trouble. We've been dealing with that for the tournament. Use your fouls. Do your rebounding. Get some rebounds. Board it. Outlet. Run the floor. You know, don't get crazy. And I think he could help them. But you know, it's tough to try to bring somebody back like this now. And I think it, that you'd have to be kind of wary to do it. You mentioned the foul trouble with PJ there. That was an issue in that Buffalo game, and that didn't really hurt them. Ended up a bunch of guys were in foul trouble, especially a bunch of post guys. Nick Richards probably ended up playing more in that game than you would have expected going into it. Uh, how concerning should the foul trouble issue be for this team moving forward? I think that's a major concern, and a team like you know Kansas State's going to slow it down. Uh, this is where you know uh, Nick Richards not playing with confidence hurts you. Um, it's where even a, a player like Ty Winyard, who got himself suspended, he has ten, he would have had five fouls. 
maybe not as much skill as some of these other guys, but um, I think that I think it's very troublesome because it changes the demeanor. PJ, the mean mug face is mm-hmm. it's pretty funny, um, yeah. but he's got a toughness about him. Same with Hamadou, I think. And when he goes out, you can see that it, I think there's a there's a little bit of change there. So I think PJ is the important piece. Uh, but Buffalo got Kevin Knox in foul trouble. PJ was in foul trouble. Sasha was in foul trouble. Yeah. And you're starting to get really worried really quickly when that happens. What um, What else did you learn today from from interviews with Kentucky, Kansas State, and then we were around a little bit for uh, Loyola and um, and Nevada before them. I think that Kansas State is going through a similar situation to, with Jared Vanderbilt at Kentucky with their best player though in Dean Wade. Right. Um, I actually saw him play at a game against Georgia back when he was a freshman. Very good player. Um, he he said he felt good after practicing. He has a stress fracture in his foot. He's missed the past three games. Um, but he would not commit. I actually asked him point blank. I said, are you going to play? And he said, I hope so. So we got to see him move around. He took some shots, and he ran through screens and pick-and-roll pick situations. But that whole team was moving in slow motion compared to Kentucky. Uh, during their open period of practice, right. I know you can't really, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that that means anything, but we couldn't tell if 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 Dean Wade is going to play or not. So both teams are dealing with with some injury issues. I think that that is obviously a major problem for Kansas State. Whereas compared with Jaron Vanderbilt, it would feel like getting a boost sort of off the bench. I thought it was interesting talking to to some of the Kansas State guys today and Bruce Weber at his news conference, and then uh, Eric Musselman and and Nevada's coach, whose name escapes me at the moment, apologies to him, but basically about this idea that Kentucky is the overwhelming favorite and how do you deal with that? Do you use this chip on your shoulder? And some of the Kansas State players said, yeah, we were chip on their shoulder. We, they got to beat us. You know, we still play basketball too, I think was the quote. Um, and Bruce Weber basically said, yeah, Virgin- Kentucky may be the favorite, but Virginia was the favorite and Michigan State was the favorite. And those teams are out and we're still playing. This South region is kind of the you know epitome of that idea that all these teams that were supposed to be here other than Kentucky, and Kentucky wasn't really even supposed to be here either because most people pick Arizona, are not here. And it's kind of been the story of this tournament so far. Uh, I guess the idea being since Virginia lost, since Michigan State got upset, since North Carolina got upset, since all these big programs have fallen down, why do we believe that Kentucky is somehow immune from it? Which I think seems to be the vibe that both of us are are giving off and both of us seem to have going into this weekend. Yeah, I think that, Clearly, if you could have picked some upsets, and, and we did. You know, we said Kentucky starting five freshmen in a place right. called Boise, Idaho, uh, which was really awesome, and we really enjoyed ourselves, we by did. the way, yeah. away from the court. Um, I think you could have easily picked Kentucky to be upset, and we did. Actually, would, if they would have lost Arizona, it wouldn't have been an upset. But um, I, I think that the the team that scared everybody the most was Arizona. Right. And they didn't get them. Yeah. And so now you're, again, like I said, like I sort of mentioned earlier, I don't mean this in, in a disrespectful way, but it's literally just outclassing them because they've got so much right. more talent and elite. The the depth of elite talent it cannot be matched by, by, by only one team left in this tournament, and it's Duke. And so I know nobody wants us to get ahead of ourselves, but this is really setting up for either Kentucky-Duke or Kentucky-Villanova. And I think in that scenario, it'd be easy to say, well, Kentucky's going to have a hard time here. But Kansas State is not Duke. Yeah. And, you know, Nevada is not Villanova. So that's just where it's at. I will admit that I was a little skeptical still about Kentucky, especially after that first game. And this, and even when they were getting Buffalo in the second round about being this team, and it was the Buffalo game that really put it over the top for me that this team's really good and this team is actually 
legitimately Final Four good at this point in time. Obviously, they haven't been that good all season. Obviously, you know, I don't think they were underseeded by any means. I think they were exactly where they were, and the bracket has helped them out. But should fans be worried at all that this is a little bit of fool's gold? I mean, when you look at it, they've played a 13 seed and they played a 12 seed, and now they're going to play a 9 seed, and maybe they're going to play an 11 in the next round or a 7 or whatever else. That's not a lot of proof that you've made on the way to San Antonio. So is this a situation where they're just beating the teams that are on their schedule where they're not very good? Or when they get there and they finally do have to play another top four kind of seed, uh, do you think Kentucky is going to be able to match up with that if it happens? That's the question. And I I took a stab at a column today about how Calipari has repeatedly called this his most rewarding team. And I think that when you – for, for for Calipari, when winning Gabriel hits seven threes in a game, or Hamadou Diallo emerges like he did, I think that I think that he's genuine in saying it is his most rewarding. I, I mean, I'm sure those I think those UMass teams were those were some of his best coaching jobs, and he had some Memphis teams that were great. Um, but there's this has been a struggle from the very beginning, and I I have written many times about how hard he worked this team in October, November, and then how he had to sort of change his mentality and be more of a cheerleader that's what Hamadou Diallo actually called him uh, back in November and I, I said that in the story there's so much positive reinforcement in November and December and just trying to come up with different combinations on the court but also pulling different strings away from the court there's no telling how many former players Calipari's paraded through there it started with Carl Anthony Towns in August but he's had all kinds of guys come speak to this team sports psychologists people from the Tubby era, people from the Patino era, everything he could do. So I do think it's the most rewarding. If he gets this team to the national championship, though, it doesn't matter who they play, in my opinion. They could play Loyola after this. They could get Texas A&M as a seven seed in the Final Four. I think this is the best coaching job, by far, at Kentucky. I mean, then you could go back to UMass and maybe debate it. Uh, But it would be incredible. I don't care who they play from here on. If they get a national championship now, they play Duke be hard to pick them against Duke yeah. but it'd be fun to see what would happen and would, I, that'd be great for the internet it would be interesting to see how fans would view the season if they made it to the final four by beating Kansas State and then say Loyola in the next round or Nevada either one and then got a Gonzaga or somebody like that in the final four who's a, a four seed and then went and lost to Duke by like 15 points in the championship game or whatever obviously you're excited to be there uh, it's going to hurt because it's Duke even more than it would anybody else. But if you got beat convincingly by the first very good team that you that you faced, I wonder if fans would question the validity of this and basically say it wasn't quite as worthwhile, even though the, the run's there and you're still going to get the runner-up banner and you're still going to get the Final Four banner or whatever hanging in Rupp Arena next year. I don't know that all of those would be created equal. And I would be really interested to see how, how Kentucky fans handled that in terms of their perception of this team because let's just admit it. This team has not been beloved for most of the season. I mean, attendance was down at Rupp. Uh, we look at numbers about traffic and, and tweets and Facebooks and all those things, and it seems like people weren't really engaged for a lot of the season in this group of team. They were so young. They were so new. But if they made a run to the championship game, I think you forget all of that. But if they lose to Duke by 15, 20, whatever, I mean, I don't know how that is perceived. I think it's, gonna, it's a really interesting dilemma for Calipari and these guys. Yeah, and it's all part of what I think makes college basketball so great. And and you know this, John. You've been you've been covering this program a lot longer than I. You know, Tubby Smith has some teams that underachieved in the tournament. 
I think he had some teams that should have hung some banners and didn't get the opportunity. Post obviously post his national championship. Right. Rick Patino had a really great team that did not get to hang a banner, and that's unfortunate. Yep. But that's sort of the nature of this beast when you've got six one offs that you've got to play to get to where you want to be. And I again it could have started with a defeat to Davidson. I mean, there were a lot of people picking Davidson right. to beat Kentucky. And it's not really their fault that other teams didn't make it to this point. So I think the way that a lot of reasonable people will remember this, if they see that banner hanging, if they right. made it to the Final Four, they'd say, you remember that time Hamadou Diallo was not good for like two months right. and went crazy against Buffalo when P.J. Washington had foul trouble and Kentucky was not included in these upsets? Those, I think, would be the talking points. And we'll see what else presents itself. I think some of it will have to – the ultimate vision of this team will be who stays and who goes and what happens next year and how they're able – if they can build on this year, that will help a lot perception-wise. Oh, good call. Uh, we'll see what happens. And, and it's way too early to discuss this. Obviously, we're going to – we haven't even moved on to the Elite Eight yet. We'll see if Kentucky can even win that game. But if they do, we'll, we'll podcast throughout and we'll talk much more about the perception and the legacy of this team as they advance the tournament if they continue to do so. Uh, one more quick news item – that we touched on today uh, that came up over the weekend. Uh, Some SEC on SEC crime, what it appeared to be at least. Uh, Auburn was getting blown out in their tournament game on Sunday. Uh, Tony Barbie, a Kentucky assistant and former Auburn head coach, obviously tweeted a laughing emoji, crying emoji. uh, And most people assume that that was a shot at Auburn and basically ran with that. I talked to Tony in the locker room today and he said that was not the case. Said it had nothing to do with basketball. He didn't tell us what it was about, which uh, is very convenient. And then basically said, I've moved on. Everybody else needs to move on too. Are you buying the explanation from Tony Barbie? And what do you make of this story overall? No, I'm go. not buying it. And I'm not going to comment until later because I've got to. I, I, if I saw Tony Barbie right now, I'd be like, come on, Tony. Come on, Tony. Are That's, you buying this? No, I'm not buying it at all. I mean, if he had come up with a different explanation, maybe, but. Uh, he was not in the mood to talk about it when he got asked by uh, Kyle Tucker first, and then I had a follow-up after that. He did not enjoy the question, and it was clear he did not want to continue that conversation, so I think it was pretty obvious that that's what it was actually about. But, you know, kept it going for another day. Before we close out here, uh, let's get our official predictions for Kentucky versus Kansas State in the Sweet 16. Uh, let's go score and maybe player of the game. Yeah, I've got Kentucky winning this one about 80-67. to 67. And I'm going to stick with the hot hand with Shea. But I think he'll, you know, score his usual 20-plus here. Yep. But I think P.J. Washington staying out of foul trouble is going to be my, my key. I think uh, I'm going to go Kentucky 85, Kansas State 62. I wow, think it's a so you got out. a big, big blowout. Yeah, and I think the reason why is I think this is a winning Gabriel game where he has uh, five-ish three-pointers, uh, finishes around 18 to 20 points. Uh, has a big game for Winion, and, and everybody else kind of clicks on this a little bit too. I like it. Who do you got in the other game, Loyola, Nevada? I'm going to roll with Loyola. Me too. And then that'll set up the, a real compelling – I mean, either way, whatever, but Loyola is the going to become the darling that by that point. They already are now. Right. You got the darling versus – Yeah, there were, so, there were so many double-digit seeds that won that first weekend and didn't exactly have staying power. Loyola appears to be the one that has – has a little bit of juice in it, and some people were picking ahead of time. Our friend Joe Masato picked them, actually, to make it to this point. Uh, props to him. But I think they're a team that could give Kentucky a run and, and is yeah. a legitimately good team, and, and I would be really eager to see that matchup, too. Um, if that happens, we'll have a, another podcast probably coming on Saturday to preview that game. If Kentucky loses, we will have a podcast to talk about 
season wrap up and and what a you know a disaster it was that they were not able to qualify or to take advantage of their easy run to the final four. Either way, make sure you're following us on Twitter. He's at Fletcher Page. I'm at John Hill underscore CJ. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening.